the show that goes there. This is the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show all the way from the city of Pukalani, Hawaii. Aloha and welcome to it. Boy, do we have a lot of exciting stuff to cover today, including the latest of Donald Trump's maybe obstruction, maybe not obstruction into the investigation behind him and what it has to do with his call to declassify some documents. We'll get into that. Also, we'll talk a little bit about the shooting that has, well, Texas still in an uproar. Before we get to all of that, welcome to the show. I am, of course, your host, a critical thinker, problem solver, guy just left of normal insane. My name is Shaggy Jenkins. You can find me at a couple of different places. Uh, at my website, shaggyjenkins.com, or search for The Shaggy Jenkins Show. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and other services, or... Why not follow me on social media at Shaggy Live? Let's begin with our first story of the day, and it concerns Donald Trump and his releasing of some classified documents. Now, there's a lot of things to unwrap about this story. So before we get any anywhere into the details and the motivations behind it, Let's cover just a little bit of the basics, shall we? Welcome back now to the other big story, the president's bombshell decision to publicly release classified documents that are directly related to the investigation into his own campaign team and their contacts with Russia. Now, that is the thing. Donald Trump is looking to get these documents out there ahead of Mueller's report. Now, with it coming now ahead of the report, of course, there is all kinds of political implications that you can talk about, all kinds of stuff that could go into the whole why is Donald Trump doing it, but also... As we speak, the intelligence community is scrambling to review those documents to make sure that releasing them will not pose a danger to national security. Yeah, you see, these documents could have some implications as far as revealing a little too much about the uh, intelligence community here in the United States. But before we get into the political stuff, let's talk about what he wants. So here's what the president is calling for. President Trump wants to declassify and release 21 pages of a highly sensitive federal surveillance application against his former aide, Carter Page. He also wants the release of FBI interviews that went into preparing the application. Second, the president wants the release of scores of text messages from current and former Department of Justice and FBI officials, including former FBI Director Jim Comey, former Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, former agent Peter Strzok, former FBI lawyer Lisa Page, and DOJ official Bruce Orr. Okay, now, I know I threw just a lot of facts at you right now, so let's take a moment and unpack everything from the beginning. Donald Trump has sought to release a lot of documents that were classified, and he's doing it because, well, he really, really, really wants to convince the American public that Mueller's investigation is a witch hunt against him. How? Well, through the release of these documents, he is hoping that um, <clears throat> that people will look at them and say, my, that is a very unscrupulous way that they came up with this whole Carter Page uh, investigation. Therefore, it delegitimizes everything. Um, there's tiny little problems in that scenario. You see, 
despite what Donald Trump has been trying to say about the investigation that Mueller and his team are doing, it has had a lot of findings that aren't really looking good for the president. Let's go through the list right now, shall we? Paul Manafort recently pled guilty. Mueller's investigation has led to multiple indictments, not only of domestic people and guilty pleas from guys like George Papadopoulos and Michael Flynn. I mean, there's a very long list of things that we could go into that don't really help the president's reputation. But when it comes to the release of this document, previously released information shows the FBI did tell the judges about the Steele dossier, and it shows that the FBI had suspicions about Page and his Russian contacts that went far beyond what Steele had uncovered. What's more, the FBI had to apply for surveillance warrants four different times in front of four different judges. All of those judges were appointed by Republican presidents. The warrants were approved every single time. Each judge finding the government showed probable cause that Page was acting as an agent of Russia. And that is the real story. You see, Donald Trump is trying to say that this whole Mueller investigation is nothing but a witch hunt. It is nothing but a bunch of hoopla that should go away because it was all made up by the Democrats. I think it's up to 17 now. I'm sure he'll be adding more to the list. But he also says that it's a part of a deep state conspiracy against him. And in going forth to prove that, sycophants in Congress like Devin Nunes out of California have kind of petitioned and advocated for the release of classified document, uh, documents that only make the president look good. And if you think that that's something that I'm just saying because, oh, you have a show and you have to have an opinion, um, no. You see, it turns out that that's exactly how specific the request for these documents were. In releasing the documents against the uh, intelligence community's investigation of Carter Page, Donald Trump specifically went through the report and zeroed in on pages that could be misconstrued and kind of held up in a semi-unobjectable light as <gasps> evidence that there was no need to start the investigation into Carter Page. But you heard that report, and I'm going to repeat it again in case you missed it, there is every bit of indication from multiple judges that Carter Page was acting as a Russian agent and acting as an agent of Russia, acting as an asset of Russia. He did things that could possibly compromise United States democracy. And that is going to be a sticking point for the Russian kind of anti-actual uh, thing uh, media parade that the Donald Trump White House is trying to roll out for us right now. He's went to Twitter. He's he said it in front of press every opportunity. Witch hunt, witch hunt, witch hunt, witch hunt. But witch hunts are usually things that you uh, used to describe um, a search for nothing and nowhere. And as far as Mueller's investigation and in findings and suspicions of Carter Page's activities, there does seem to be a kind of whole belief right now, and just in time for the Halloween season, witches are real. 
You see, if this is going to be a witch hunt for Donald Trump, he really has to kind of take a step back and say, oh my God, I might be a witch. Now, this is the problem with all of these releasing of documents that he's doing. One, there is the political ramifications of it. Let's say that we have another scenario where the GOP does exactly what they did under Devin Nunes' guidance. You, re you remember Devin Nunes, right? Guy out of California, hardcore Trumper, always wants to make sure that the president looks good, actually did his absolute best to stonewall and shut down a congressional investigation of ties between Russia and Trump, even going as far as making sure that subpoenas weren't served and the like. Devin Nunes has been, <clears throat> dare I say, a political obstructionist professionally. Well, as such, Nunez is one of the guys that has led the charge against. Let's release documents that make us look good and kind of uh, delegitimize this whole investigation against our president and our party problem, Mr. Nunez. When you go through and you actually cherry pick the stuff that you want to release, it makes it look <clears throat> even worse. Because now on the president's Twitter account, he also went as far as trying to quote some of the stuff. And I, I do like the fact that the for the first time ever in Donald Trump's Twitter feed, the word redacted. Believe it or not, you want to look it up? That happened today. Um, but when Donald Trump was on his whole rollout of it, he kind of mirrored stuff that Nunes was saying earlier. Well, things like... This is nothing but a political kind of jealousy act on the part of bitter Democrats. And uh, with it all being politically motivated, there's no legitimacy or even reason beyond a doubt to keep this whole thing rolling. Well, problem with that is that the more the investigation goes on, the more we actually find out is is actually happening. Now, what have we discovered so far? Well, barring a big bombshell from Paul Manafort's testimony that could be coming, and by the way, we have to touch on this. Remember how Donald Trump said all these were really good people, including Carter Page? Yeah, that turned out not to be so true, did it? <clears throat> but getting back into the, 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 the whole thing, um, when it comes to people like Devin Nunes, Donald Trump, and the like trying to basically delegitimize this investigation. This investigation so far has netted a lot, over a dozen uh, domestic indictments and more than 23 foreign indictments so far. And the report, by the way, in case you're keeping score, the report has still not been released. So Nunez and Trump and everybody else knows that they have to do as much damage to it before it comes out. And one way that they're trying to damage it is by cherry picking little tiny details that they can go out to their base, who, let's go ahead and face facts, is already highly misinformed and doesn't even trust legitimate information sources. These, these people don't think that news is real. Oh my God, help us. We live in a world where people don't think news is real. Uh, but Nunez 
and Trump both have had kind of this very similar theory. And it always seems that Donald Trump has been the uh, grand marshal of this parade, as it were. He's there just saying, come on, you should go out there and make sure that we ah, we disenfranchise this investigation. Be working. Because let's not forget that polls show time and time and time again how Donald Trump and the like are gaining traction with the American public. Some people now saying that, well, more often than not, over 50%, that maybe there is some sort of illegitimacy to the Mueller investigation. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's pump our logic brakes here. That's kind of disheartening. But... With Donald Trump's latest tactics, this could actually backfire on him. By releasing the documents and not giving the security, uh, well, the intelligence community enough time to go through the security clearances of it, there could be some pretty damaging stuff in there. And if that's not enough, the documents could in fact disprove the narrative that Trump is in fact trying to spin. Carter Page is a political target of deep state Democrats within this witch hunt of an investigation, and it was always an illegitimate kind of investigation from the absolute onset. But as they say in the song, hold up, wait a minute, it turns out that might not be the case at all. As much as Republicans are trying to say, look, these documents will Rest assured, prove that everything that we said about Mueller and his team and this investigation is true. Instead, it basically comes off as saying, um, no, stuff happened. We caught it kind of early. Things were kind of fast moving and we had to catch up and adapt. But time after time after time in front of different judges. Oh, by the way. Those judges, all appointed by Republicans, time after time after time, when subpoenas were requested of a judge, Republican judges said that Carter Page was, in fact, up to something bad. And no matter the evidence that Trump wants to pull out, no matter, and, and get this, it's not just documents. He's wanting text messages, too. He's wanting to release text messages from James Comey, former Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, former employees Peter Stroik and Lisa Page, and, of course, current Justice Department lawyer Bruce Orr, a Russian organized crime expert. Now, Trump has criticized Every last one of these people as out to get him, as having some sort of nefarious agenda against him. And in his fight to get even with them, he's thinking that the release of these secrets, these these texts and stuff, will somehow clear his name. Now, we could go on and on and on about how this really messed up people inside the intelligence community, and especially people that were <clears throat> basically trying to warn Trump all along that he shouldn't release these documents because they are highly, highly sensitive. Now, when they talked to certain spokespeople inside of the office, uh, well, inside of the uh, National Intelligence Office, uh, the spokesman Kelly Wade said, quote, as requested by the White House, the ODNI is working expeditiously with our interagency partners to conduct a declassification review of the documents the president has identified 
for declassification. And when they say the president identified the specific pages he wanted declassified, we're talking down to the page number. When I said earlier that this was a cherry-picked kind of report that Trump was hoping to get out, it is highly, highly cherry-picked. Now, in a statement from the Justice Department, one spokesman said, quote, when the president issues such an order, it triggers a declassification review process that is conducted by various agencies within the intelligence community in conjunction with White House counsel, not only to assure the American uh, safety of national security, but also to make sure that the Department of Federal Bureau of Investigations, if they're working on something, the Director of National Intelligence Agency, if they're working on something, it is supposed to make sure that it doesn't impede or infringe on any ongoing investigations. And that's where the little, as I like to call them on this show, sticky wicket comes from in this story. You see, Donald Trump has been under this shroud from day one, right after he fired James Comey, of being an obstructionist. Yes, an obstructionist, somebody that is actually trying to stop any sort of investigations that would make him his credibility, or his office look bad. And that's exactly what it seems that his tilt is with these. But here's the thing. It's not going to go without some sort of backlash. I mean, including and Adam Schiff, you know him. He's a Democrat from California, ranking member on the House Intelligence Committee. Well, he said, quote, President Trump in a clear abuse of power. Think about those words. A clear abuse of power. Now, this is something that it does kind of need to be brought up at this point, that no other time in the American history has any of our presidents went after personal enemies in such a unilateral kind of power-bending and abusing way. But Adam Schiff said, Quote, President Trump, in a clear abuse of power, has decided to intervene in a pending law enforcement investigation by ordering the selective release of materials he believes are helpful to his defense team and thinks will advance a false narrative. You see, Trump's whole defense right now is no collusion, no collusion, and everybody's out to get him. So anything that he can do to kind of spin that narrative ahead of the release of Mueller's report and while an an investigation is ongoing, definitely kind of has a little bit of tyrannical overhandedness of somebody that is trying to obstruct a case that could have negative implications for them. Now, this is the thing, too. Because when you think of all of this stuff that the president is doing around the release of these documents, you really have to ask yourself is at the end of the day, will it work? And there is where we are in completely new waters. I mean, according to the uh, former general counsel of the uh, OD. N.I. Robert Litt, he goes, this is certainly unprecedented. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you say WTF in official government language. 
That is exactly how you say, what the... You, you, in official government terms, when he said this is certainly unprecedented, he doesn't mean just a small little uh, precedent. He's talking about the compromise of sources, methodology of the investigation team, impact and willingness of people to cooperate in an ongoing investigation, potential of selective releases of classified materials that could serve partisan purposes. This is the thing that everybody, when we talk about constitutional crises, this is the thing that we are most afraid of. This is the thing that really scares us. It's now we're at the point where the president has started to, in his own defense, compromise the safety of other departments within the United States government. And if you want to talk about things not being safe, imagine being an operative within the intelligence community right now, knowing that the methods that you use to gather evidence against criminals is about to be disclosed. This is like giving somebody a cheat guide, a Konami code to the legal system, and it is not something that will go unnoticed. Now, of course, when you know people reached out to the FBI and other uh, certain intelligence agencies, there was no comment forthcoming, but you could imagine that right now, a lot of them are sitting in their offices going, what next? Donald Trump, in his need to defend himself, has gone so far off the rails that He's willing to throw the intelligence community's methodology of investigations out there for everybody to scrutinize, despite the fact that those methods are currently being used in an investigation against him. Now, I don't want to cite some sort of historical precedents of other tyrannical leaders or despotic leaders in the past that have done this, but I have to agree sometimes with Trevor Noah's assessment after Donald Trump's first year in the presidency. He does kind of make a really great leader of an African country. Now, if you want to talk about how kind of unhinged things could go for somebody like that, somebody that is despotic, that wants a tyrannical control over the media and society's opinion of their rule, think about this little side story. Don McGahn, okay, or McGahn, however you like to say it, sometimes the H is silent, sometimes it's not. But here's the thing. Not too long ago, he found himself in a little bit of a whoa moment as Donald Trump tweeted that he's going to be leaving the administration very soon when, in fact, the legal counsel for the White House was not planning on leaving. Now, here's the thing. <clears throat> this might be another one of those Donald trying to control things to the nth degree in very devastating ways. How so? Well, it turns out that not too long ago, there was an article that came out in, in, I think it was the New York Times, in fact, that talked about how the White House counsel had sat down with Mueller's investigation team for some 30 hours of testimony. 
Now, Donald Trump has famously been very, very pro-tight-lipped people. He's very sopranoistic in his views of how government works. Keep the good guys closer and keep the bad guys in concrete shoes. Kill your political enemies, as it were. And, and nobody is better at turning on somebody like Donald Trump. I mean, earlier when we mentioned James Comey, we should probably bring up the fact that James Comey found out he was fired from a news crawl at the bottom of the screen while he was addressing members of the intelligence community. How embarrassing was that? But when it comes to Don, White House counsel Don McGon. He found out on Twitter, kind of the same way that we all found out that there was going to be a nuclear war with North Korea, a trade war with China, and the end of the world as we knew it from the very president of the United States. Now, everybody says that he was blindsided by this announcement because not only did he have no intentions of leaving the White House Council, but he thought that he was clearly still in the favor of the president. But you got to look at the things that he could have potentially witnessed and why Mueller's team would want to talk to him at length. I mean, he was there when Comey was fired. He was there when a lot of these discussions behind the scenes about loyalty pledges and stuff like that were happening. If anybody was closer to the emperor than his White House counsel, I... I'd really like to see them because even Mike Pence goes into a bunker every time Trump says or does something that could potentially impact Pence's career. But when it comes to the White House counsel, he is genuinely frustrated that, you know, he had no plans to leave whatsoever. But what it shows is a very clear pattern. When it comes to the president of the United States right now, you are either full tilt for him or full tilt against him. There is no gray area in his mind. There is no middle ground. Once you do something like talk to, quote unquote, the other guys, you, you're dead to me. That's what you are, Sammy. You're dead to me. At least that's the way Trump kind of behaves when it comes to not only his inner circle, but people with inside his administration. How far will he take this? Who knows? But I've been predicting the Saturday Night Massacre for a while, and now with the president starting to shed his own legal counsel, which, by the way, is working on a case that they have no clear idea of what they're defending when they're defending it, could the White House be under a Saturday Night Massacre soon? Is the countdown finally on? Yeah, maybe I'm getting my hopes up. Coming up, we'll talk about a shooting down in Texas that has the nation captivated. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show. Welcome to 60 Second Civics, the daily podcast of the Center for Civic Education. I'm Mark Gage. With the upheaval caused by war and revolution in 17th century Europe, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke believed that political philosophy needed a new start. They originated natural rights philosophy, which focuses on the rights of individuals. Thomas Hobbes sought to explore ideas about government 
by imagining a state of nature where there is war of every man against every man, and people fear violent death at the hands of others. Humans would leave the state of nature by entering into a social contract. They would consent to an authoritarian state he called Leviathan, which is ruled by a powerful despot. To maintain peace and order, the Leviathan state must rule through fear. However, the state is established to protect the lives of the people, and their obligations to the state cease if the state ever attacks their lives. Otherwise, the powers of the Leviathan state are unlimited. That's all for today's podcast, 60 Second Civics, where civic education only takes a minute. Dig deeper. Remove the hype. Find the facts. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show on the Pacifica Radio Network. It's the Shaggy Jenkins Show from the city of Pukalani, Hawaii. Welcome back to it. If this is your first time checking out the show, aloha, as we are from the 50th state of Hawaii on the Valley Isle known as Maui. Hey, if you'd like to find out anything about our show, including the paradisimo of radio that we are, well, you can visit our website at shaggyjenkins.com or follow me wherever fine social media is served at Shaggy Live. Now, before we went to the break, we were talking a little bit about the president and his woes of, well, this whole investigation. And he's not the only one going through a little bit of a problem. It turns out that, okay, if you've been following Kavanaugh, you know that right now the vote has been postponed. They finally went up and postponed the vote that was going to confirm or not confirm him on Thursday. But let's be honest. They were going to confirm him. But it looks like they're having a little bit of a problem with their investigation into allegations of sexual assault on behalf of Judge Kavanaugh. The reason why? The accuser. Uh, I mentioned her the other day, right? Her her name was uh, Christine Blasey. Uh, I think it's Rice. I forgot the last name. But the thing is, is right now, the, 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 the big important matter is, is she doesn't want to testify. She's a little unwilling and instead wants the FBI to open up an investigation into Kavanaugh before she is subpoenaed to discuss the details of it. Now, there's a lot of things that you could bring up at this point that kind of are like, huh, moments. But this is one thing that you can consider. She's trying to avoid another Anita Hill scandal. See, Christine Blasey Ford is very acutely aware of what happens to people that accuse Supreme Court justices or potential Supreme Court justices of any sort of wrongdoing. As a matter of fact, she knows that if she comes forward, there is a very good chance that just like Anita Hill was done in 1991, her public reputation could be sullied, her family could be drugged through the mud, and all of this could be done along partisan lines for years and years and years to come, ignoring the basic tenet of her argument that a potential Supreme Court judge justice committed sexual assault. And that is something that is going to be very interesting to shake out because now, with her reluctance to come forward unless there's an FBI investigation, 
Oh, God, this thing could get muddy. But I found out the other day, have no fear. This wouldn't be the first time a nominee didn't get uh, pushed through. Remember that last nominee Obama had that they wouldn't even see and instead rewrote the congressional rules to give uh, Neil Gorsuch the seat? Yeah, that happened. Well, let's move on to other stories, shall we? If you've been following any of the news out of Texas, chances are you've heard a story come through the wire that, well, at first was presented a little oddly, and I'll let this commentator explain how. A search warrant describes more of the evidence collected at Botham John's apartment the day after he was shot and killed by an off-duty Dallas police officer. Hello, I'm Heather Hayes. I'm Steve Eager. It's 9 o'clock. Among the items listed in the document are cartridge casings, a backpack with police equipment, and marijuana. Welcome back to AM Joy. That report from a local Fox affiliate in Dallas, Texas, sparked outrage this week and allegations that the media and the police are trying to smear Botham Jean, the 26-year-old black man who was gunned down in his own apartment by an off-duty police officer. The Fox affiliate tweeted about the search warrant on the same day as his funeral. Now, think about that. They waited until the day that his friends and family were all gathered around to release these kind of quote-unquote bombshells about young uh, Mr. Jean. And here's the thing. When it comes to Botham Jean, it, it really goes to say who's telling the story kind of paints him one way or the other. Now, we heard how the Fox News team, uh, that local affiliate, we heard how they described him and the ways they tried to set up the story. Check it out from another angle. Last week, Gene, a 20, 20, 2016 college graduate who worked at Price Waterhouse Coopers and was a song leader at his local church, was shot and killed in his home by Dallas police officer Amber Geiger. Now, see, that's just it. When you talk about the story, it does change the entire way you feel about it if the victim is actually described in a victim kind of way. But... See, this is a problem in the United States, a problem that we have had for an eternity, and we actually need to talk about it very carefully. It's what happens when we try to vilify the victims. Well, first and foremost, if you're wondering if that's what's happening here, the answer is a resounding yes. And if you don't believe me, just listen to this quote from Jean's mother, about how she feels her and her family are being treated in the aftermath of this murder. To have my son smed in such a way, I think shows that there are persons who are really nasty, who are really dirty, and are going to cover up for the devil, Amber Geiger. And I want to find out whether the toxicology reports on, I, I, on Amber has been released because she was the murderer. And that seems to be the thing that a lot of people keep forgetting about this case. When it comes to how this man ended up dead, he did not participate in it. He wasn't culpable or responsible for his own death. However, 
from the onset, this has always kind of been constructed in a way that let the officer seem innocent. According to the Dallas Morning News, Geiger told police that she mistook Jean's apartment for her own and that the door was ajar. Geiger says that when she entered, she saw a silhouette and thought she was being burglarized. She said she drew her gun, gave commands that Jean ignored, and then fired twice. You see, already it's, it's, it's kind of set up as the scenario of a police officer encounter. The, the, the cop came in and issued commands, not yelled incoherently, What are you doing in my apartment? Where, where am I? No, no, no. They walked in. They issued commands. The victim, uh, <clears throat> or in this case, you know, the <laughs> defendant, uh, did not follow those commands. And because there was no following of those commands, that is what resulted in the death of Botham Jean. But when we look at the actual story, it fell apart pretty quickly. And, and a lot of people really, really wanted to know what was going on. But lots of people are raising questions about Geiger's story, which has shifted on some details. And according to an attorney for Jean's family, two people reported hearing knocking and a woman's voice saying, let me in before the shooting. Geiger was arrested on manslaughter charges three days after she killed Jean and is now free on bail. So now we see the benefits of this whole narrative that was put forth by Officer Geiger and the police department. Let's make Botham Jean look bad so that this officer's actions, not this intoxicated person with a gun, this officer's actions seem justified, seem justifiable. As a matter of fact, we'll paint this picture of fear and, and white woman versus minority male. And, and of course, the American public will buy it. And that's what they're hoping. But See, that's not how justice really should work. And when it comes to the case of Botham Jean getting shot in his own apartment by an intoxicated officer and then that officer getting out on bail for manslaughter, not homicide charges, it starts to paint a picture of the inequities of justice in the United States. Look, I, I, I know this is going to be a little bit of a history lesson to you, but it goes without saying that when cases like this come forward in the American um, awareness, we, we kind of have to hearken back to other times that stories like this were prevalent. And sadly, when it comes to a story like this, that could be as near as the good old day of yesterday or the day before or the day before or the day before. The modus operandi of police officers when it comes to fatal encounters with people of color is always to paint that person in a criminal light. And sadly, a lot of times that stuff works. It, it actually works. And the, the, the thing that, that when you look into a story like Botham John, you really have to kind of dissect the implications of what this means for our society. In the year 2018, we are still in the civil rights movement of the 1960s in Mississippi burning-esque kind of fashion. Justice is only given to certain people of certain privilege, i.e. 
whites of European descent and not given to anyone else. And when it comes to an encounter between somebody that is white and somebody that isn't, the go-to defense methodology is to paint that person in a negative aspect, to make them seem like they are somehow responsible, somehow culpable, somehow, in some way, they're the murderer of themselves. And that is kind of far-fetched, but it is exactly what is happening in the case of Officer Geiger and the shooting death of Botham Jean. Now, keep in mind that these two people shared an apartment complex. And, of course, there was uh, kind of witness statements that said on the night that he was shot, it wasn't that the, jo- the door was ajar and that this was a simple mistaken identity thing. This seemed like an officer who had a little bit of a vendetta going on, a little bit of a ha-ha-ha, I'm going to hash this out right now. I mean, why else in the middle of the night would you hear somebody knocking saying, let me in, let me in? And let's just be honest, who in their right mind would let somebody in under the pretenses of they're going to kill me? So, obviously, something more was going on than what the official narrative from the officer and the police department is being portrayed as. And sadly, the only other person that knows got buried on a day that his reputation also got murdered by local news affiliates on the conservative side of the spectrum, the ones that want black people to be bad, the ones that want minorities to always be somehow the responsible party for any time any of their population and communities end up killed. Think about the ludicrousness of that statement. And and then let's 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 do a little daydreaming, shall we? Because here's the deal. What if, just say what if, it was me or you? What if, just say what if, you were sitting around your house one night and, okay, let's go with scenario A, the one from Officer Geiger's standpoint, where the door was ajar, she wandered in, she saw a silhouette, started issuing commands, the The silhouette did not respond to the commands, so she drew a weapon and fired twice. Let's, let's look at it, that scenario first. From the perspective of the victim. Okay, so from the perspective of the victim, what we have here is somebody that was just chilling, hanging out at their own house, minding their business, everything was going great, swimmingly well, and then all of a sudden somebody comes busting through the door with a gun telling them what to do. Now, if that was me or you, and and, and here's the sad part, let's say it was me that was in Botham John's situation. I am a white male. Chances are, I hate to say it, statistically speaking, had that encounter gone down where there was a white male involved and not a black man, the white man would have lived. So let's say it was somebody like me that was sitting there and somebody comes through the door and starts telling me what to do in my own house. My first instinct, 
I'm going to rush them. What are you doing here? What's going on? Do I need to worry about my family's safety and the safety of others around me? Are you a threat that needs to be dealt with? I'm, I'm sorry, I went to a real dark place there. But you, you get what I'm saying. This is survivalistic type of thinking. The stuff that would be going through your head if somebody came into your house issuing orders. So in that scenario, any reasonable person, man, woman, or child, would react in only about three ways. One, compliance. Two, rebelliousness, which is, what the hell are you doing? And, of course, I'm going to attack them for being in my house. And the other one is, is outright fear and just collapsing in a puddle of themselves. That's the only three scenarios that can play out there. Roll it over in your head. Consider what I'm saying and, and, and let me know if you think I am actually telling the truth because I am. Okay, so that's scenario A. That's the one from Officer Geiger. Now, let's, let's look at the other scenario, the one from Witness Accounts. And that one is kind of even more, well, easy to see that a reasonable person would be either A, scared out of their mind, or B, they would react in some sort of fight or flight way. Let's say you are in your house. It's the middle of the night. Someone starts banging on the front of your door, demanding to be let in. And it turns out that that person demanding to be let in is one of your neighbors. So you're, 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 you're just like, oh, my God, something must be wrong. So in your care and concern, you run to the door, you rush it, you throw it open, only to be confronted by somebody that thinks that you have pulled an Axel Foley and stolen an entire residence. Now, once again, Axel Foley could only pull that off because it was the 80s and he's Eddie Murphy and it was completely fictional. So who in their right mind tries to steal a house? And who tries to steal an apartment? I mean, if you're going to go, homie, go big. Head out to Beverly Hills. But that, that's it's not the, 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 the point here. The point is, a private citizen thinking that there was somebody in distress goes to answer his door and instead of being greeted with a bad scenario, might have been greeted with a confrontation of an intoxicated police officer who was armed. Put yourself in that situation and just tell me real quick, moment of silence here, what would you do? Because if you said anything other than, oh my God, panic and react, then you are a cold, cold person that is probably a bad mamma jamma. And thanks for listening to us, Shaft. But for everybody else, look, this situation, no matter how you look at it, plays off as a person who basically went into the wrong place and killed somebody thinking that it was their apartment or you think what happened the night that Botham John died was there a confrontation was this some sort of escalation of violence that had already been in their past well let's look again at his character even though the conservative media even though the conservative police department is trying to paint him as somebody that is bad and nefarious, when it comes to Botham John, he is the one thing that Stacey Roberts on this show has always wanted. He is a normal person of color. 
He has a normal job. He does normal things, watches normal TV shows, engages in normal community actions. He's a normal guy. Goes to church, works his job, loves his family, hangs out with people in his community and apartment complex, does barbecues, has thoughts, loves, dreams. Well, he doesn't have those things anymore because somebody killed him, and now it looks like the system is going to let that person get off instead of justice actually being served. And here's the despicable thing about this. No matter what side you look at it on, it is an argument. It's an argument from the sake of, well, conservatives don't like this story because, one, it once again raises the ugly specter of us being forced into a conversation about gun safety and police brutality. And those are two sore, sore conversations for America to have, both equally unpleasant and neither one of them codependent on the other one for its existence. Police brutality isn't necessarily just about guns, and gun violence isn't necessarily just about police officers. However, Ted Cruz seems to think that everybody out there has this thing all wrong. And he should know he's from Texas, right? Well, according to the good Senator Ted Cruz, he says that in this case, when it comes to the story of Botham Jean, Democrats and others are just making a big deal about it. That's, that's all this is. It's just a big deal over nothing. And they really shouldn't try to politicize a, 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 an event like this because, you know, the police, this is an internal issue and, and they'll handle it themselves. Okay, that may be true. But the guy that's trailing Ted Cruz in the polls right now by only nine points, Beto O'Rourke, the Democratic candidate for that district, his viewpoint is radically different. Whereas, <clears throat> like most sensible people, he says it's bad to demonize minorities. Yeah, the way the media specifically the media that was very pro-police in the Texas areas, went after the victim, Botham Jean, the way and the methodology that they used kind of reminds you of the way that, well, Nixon started the war on drugs because he didn't like all that heroin. I mean, <clears throat> black people. Remember, we vilified the drugs because we thought the drugs only existed in minority communities. But surprise, surprise, the suburbs were a smoking. OK, so that was one little misdirection that we've had in life. But with with Ted Cruz saying this is all about a Democratic misunderstanding of the situation, Beto O'Rourke said, no, this is once again white demonization of minorities when it benefits the narrative. And what is the narrative? Well, the narrative is that the police can do no wrong, that white is right, and that secretly, you know, if you're a person of color and you have a problem, well, tough on you. The rest of us had to earn our way in America, and someday, one day, maybe that could be you. Just pull yourself up by the bootstraps and ignore all that institutionalized racism working against you systematically every single day. 
it doesn't really work, does it? But Beto O'Rourke says, look, when the media goes out and we demonize these these minority communities, when we go and we try to create criminals where criminality does not exist, we are doing a disservice not only for the victim of this particular case, but for victims of cases that have yet to be found and yet to be heard and yet to happen. Because time and time and time again, when you are a person of color in the United States and something happens to you or someone in your community, you know that the first thing that's going to happen is you're somehow responsible. By doing nothing, by doing absolutely nothing, by mere existence, you are responsible. And when you hear Ted Cruz reinforce that with saying, well, the Democrats need to lay off. This is an important uh, internal affair. And, and they are, why are they always trying to make this about uh, violence against minority communities and guns? Be- because this is a case of both of those stories being wrapped up in a nice little happy meal for Cruz to suck down on. But of course, he's not going to open that one. But Beto O'Rourke did, and I think we're all better for hearing this argument. So I am very concisely here at the end of the show going to tell you a very important fundamental truth that we have to embrace today. When we're looking at stories, whereas a person of color is killed, if the narrative automatically goes to villainizing the victim, into somehow making a obvious innocent party culpable for their own death, we need to turn that noise off. We need to start holding, and yeah, I say this as a member of the media myself, we need to start holding all media, no matter what side of the political aisle they're on, accountable for how they portray people. And if you're somebody in the media and you're somebody that, 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 you know, enjoys your time as a broadcaster and somewhere in the course of your day, you're reading a story and you're thinking, yeah, that serves them right. Those filthy so-and-sos. You're not doing media the right way. If ever you sit back behind your desk and say, I don't want to read this news story because it doesn't sound bad enough on the people that I want bad, then you're not doing a responsible media job. You are doing something that is marginalizing and tearing apart our, tearing apart our country neighborhood by neighborhood. And I've reiterated this time and time and time again, not too long ago, why Sage John Stewart even came out and tried to warn the American people, hey guys, um... All of this dissension in the media of fighting about who's right and who's wrong and who looks good and who looks ugly and who did what to who, all of this stuff at the end of the day serves no purpose other than tearing us apart. And in this case, and with this story, it's not just a person's life who's ended. It's not just a family who has had their entire world unraveled and torn apart. It's not just any of those things. It is the fact that time and time again, people like me, 
and you, when we're listening to the news, we don't automatically say, hey, knock that off. You need to not demonize persons of color because their involvement in something that happened to them, okay? And as long as we're going out on statistics, guys like Ted Cruz probably already know this, but it goes without saying, when it comes to crimes in the United States, gun violence crimes, white people, you take the cake on those gun violence crimes, committing more than any other race out there. When it comes to terrorist attacks, congratulations, Caucasians, you win it again. And who does the most abuses of the welfare system in the United States? It's crackers. Let those sink in. Until next time, love you, mean it, Kate and bye.